Thank you for listening to the Redeemer podcast. Redeemer exists to make the gospel of Jesus known in our city, region, and world. Subscribe to the Redeemer podcast to not only access our weekly sermons, but also select special talks and lectures by myself and our guest speakers. If you want to know more about Redeemer and how you can be a part of what God is doing through our church, go to www.redeemerbible.ca. Thank you, and we hope that you're blessed by what you're about to hear. And we're into Acts 9, and we're going to be speaking, uh, I'll be reading chapter 9, verses 19 to 31. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were afraid, they were sorry, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them, at, uh, sorry, went out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. All right. So, I'm going, you know, I often start in weird places, but I'm going to start with chemistry today. So, there's in, in science, in chemistry, there's things called compounds. And some very common compound, what a compound is, is when you take uh, two different molecules, at least two, and then when they combine, they create something. They're a compound thing. And so at home, for instance, you've got a few different sorts of compounds. You have water, which is a compound made up of H2O, two hydrogen molecules and one oxygen molecule. And when they come together, water. You have sodium chloride, which is salt. And when you combine the sodium and chloride, you've got sodium chloride, it's salt. And ammonia, same idea with hydrogen and nitrogen. Now, the reason I bring this up is because what you see in compounds is two things come together at least, and they make something great, or something useful, or something different at least. And in this passage, Paul or Luke is, speaks about Christian peace, the peace that we can have and should have, and we have access to, and he speaks of it as if it's a compound as if it's made up of two different things, fear, the fear of the Lord, and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And where those two things come together, you have peace. And what's interesting is, that's only mentioned at the very end, in verse 31, when it says that they, there was peace finally. And what they mean, what Luke means is, when, when Saul, who has now converted, he's now gone from being a Jew to being a Christian, and when he has done that, uh, he starts preaching, but he finds very quickly within a few verses, he has two different plots on his life. And so 
by the end of when Saul's converted and then he is sent off to Tarsus to, on the run to avoid being killed, um, then there's a period of peace. And for the first time since chapter 4, we hear that the church has some peace. So five chapters of flux. But what is clear from the first 19 verses, from verse 19 to 30 at least, is that it's not like they just had peace when Saul was gone and there was just circumstantial peace, like there was no persecution. There's that reality of peace. But you see in the way Saul behaves and in the way the church interacts with him that they actually had this peace before there was actual circumstantial peace. And that's important. It's, it's what all the songs have been about. It's what Simon's prayer was about. This idea that Christians are able to and ought to have peace in any possible circumstance. And the way to do it is to understand, well, the gospel is first and access what's there, the gospel. But the way we have peace is by understanding that you have to have the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to walk through this, this threefold idea. First thing we're going to do is try to look at this idea of peace. And as simple as it is, we're going to, I'm going to try to show that in the, midst, in the midst of all the flux and the uncertainty happening at the time and in our own lives today, which is a pretty chaotic time of, to live, um, the church had peace. They were at peace. And then we're going to unpack how that, that was a sort of peace. We're going to look at how the fear of the Lord was in them and then how the comfort of the Spirit was there. We're going to, basically a profile of peace. That's what we're going to do. So let's begin with peace. So... Let me. Let, here's what we know. We always look at the book of Acts and we study it over and over because there's something admirable about it. As, as Christians, you look at it and you think, boy, I'd like to be that faithful. I'd like to have that sort of peace. I'd like to have that kind of a church. And so when we look here, what's interesting is the way the world was falling apart around them, and, or at least it was, very, it was new. Everything was new. And I'm going to be teaching a class, um, not here, but I guess I could teach it here, next year on worldviews, on Christian worldviews in this world. And one of the things that comes clear is there's a lot of uncertainty. Things are very different. If you're of an older generation, two generations from the ones being born now, let's say, you will struggle to have a conversation with a 19-year-old. Not just because technology has changed, but because the things that you held to be orthodox and true are completely different. You assumed you were a man or a woman. You can't necessarily assume the way the culture is now. So it's, it's like speaking two different languages. Everything seems in flux. Is there anything anymore? It's almost like we're free-falling from the sky, and we're looking for somewhere to plant our feet. And so there's flux happening here, and there was at the time too. And a different sort of uncertainty, but still. So at this time, if we just look at the passage, what is going on in Saul's life and in the church's life that shows it was chaotic, and yet he had peace, and they had peace. So with Saul specifically, we see a lot of new things were going on. The first thing we see, well, we'll go in no particular order, is he has a brand new family. So Saul has gone from um, having a certain in crowd, a group he was a part of, a family, literally, and now he's got these disciples in chapter 19. In fact, or verse 19, it actually says he has disciples following him already. I mean, he's just started. But he's got this new family. He's got the church that are his family now. And the church are not just them, but there's Barnabas who comes to his defense. And then this church will eventually expand and start to protect him. So he's, understand, a conversion from someone, from one religion to another in that time, is not much different than it would be today if a Muslim becomes a Christian. There's a whole new family they meet, and they lose a family, potentially. So that's pretty 
considerable for Paul or Saul. Second, his message completely changes. He goes from talking about the law and the Old Testament and this Yahweh, this, this, this God of Israel, into now speaking about the same things, but through the Christian lens. The message all through in verse 20 is he proclaimed Jesus. Verse 22, proving that Jesus was the Christ. 27 and 28, he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So his, his message has completely changed. And, of course, his message isn't it's not just the things he's saying. It's the very foundation of his life. He thought God was one way, and now he's seeing God is a different way. And so that has radically changed. He has new enemies. The Jews are his enemies. The people who were the ones who sent him out, who were his support base, are now his enemies. And if you were to read in 1 Corinthians, you'll, when he, he talks about this time, he says it wasn't just the Jews, but it was also the authorities at the time were driving him out. So it wasn't just the Jews. But he has new enemies. He has a new standing. He was once accepted and honored. And now, as a Christian, he's dishonored amongst his old circle, and he's actually still suspected amongst the new. The Christians don't even accept him right away. They do pretty quickly. But So he's, again, everything is different. His courage is different. Now, courage is one of these virtues that is not necessarily the sole um, property of Christians or of anyone in particular. Uh, sinners can have uh, this virtue of courage. Attila the Hun was very courageous. Right? Courage is a virtue that can be possessed anywhere. But when he becomes a Christian, then he sets the courage. This courage is now focused in the right way. And this is what we see with Paul. He goes out and he preaches boldly in the midst of it. Which is Now remember, all of this flux is happening. Everything is new, but what he doesn't do is get distracted by it. Instead, he's preaching. He's still doing what he's called to do. He's, his mind... His mind has changed. He's always been brilliant. Paul was a brilliant guy before and after. But what we find is that it's now the renewal of his mind. He goes from, uh, in fact, this adds to the next one, which is his methods change. Because up until this point, the only thing you've heard about Saul was that he persecuted people. The way he persuaded people was through coercion and violence. But now how is he doing it? Speaking, preaching, reasoning. And it shows us not only that Paul is somehow at peace. He's not distracted. He doesn't need to, to fight these other battles. He just preaches the gospel. But it also shows us this, especially if you're a skeptic, that Christianity is a thinking religion. That Christianity demands that you actually think and use your mind. You don't check it at the door. This idea of blind faith is completely misplaced. And it's a fabrication. Nowhere in Christianity are we told to have blind faith. Quite the opposite. Can't talk about all that this moment. But next thing. Relationships. Now, it's not just his relationships, but the relationships even in the church because the church has now got this guy who was persecuting them, and now he's apparently a believer. And what do they do with this? It's, everything's in flux. New thinking, new families, new relationships, new laws. All these things are changing. And this is similar to what we have in our world today, but in the midst of it, we know there was peace. That's all we're trying to establish in this first point. There was peace. Because the opposite of peace is anxiety and distress. And so what you don't see the church doing amidst all of these changes, and what you don't see Saul doing, is, um, is getting shook. He, they have composure. They still hold firm to what they're supposed to do. So Saul is not concerned for his well-being. He doesn't get into panic when his life is, in, is threatened. He knows that from the beginning. Instead, he simply does what he's supposed to do. He preaches boldly. He has peace. He doesn't need to be distracted by these other things. And the church, in the same way, they embrace Saul, and, they put, and then they even put themselves in danger to protect him. And so they have peace in the midst of it. The church grows. Everything is humming along quite well. So that's a very simple first point. 
we can state that in this passage we see the church is at peace. They're not distracted. They're not anxious. They seem to be at peace. That's a simple fact. Now the next two are a little more practical. How are they at peace? And the first one we'll cover, because it's the order it comes in in the passage, is the first is this one part fear, and there's one part comfort, right? That's what makes this compound of peace. And this first, when we talk about the fear of the Lord, one thing we have to make sure we, we say, we cannot reduce the fear of the Lord to respect. I, I see that a lot. Christians often want to say, it's almost like, again, we, we really do, it's probably a fact that we fear the wrong things. We want to sometimes um, exonerate God. We want to make it sound like, well, no, no, God doesn't, you're not supposed to be afraid of God. Because we're, it's almost like we're embarrassed by that language. But here's what you can't do, is say that it's just respect. Because first, a few things. One, the Bible as a whole won't allow that. <laughs> the way it speaks about it. But the two words that you find used to describe the fear of the Lord, the Hebrew and the Greek ones, primarily, um, also don't allow it. In, in Hebrew, it's pahad. And in, in Greek, it's phobos, where we get phobia from. And in both instances, it doesn't just mean respect. Not what it means. In fact, it never means that directly. It always means dread and terror. So one thing you can't do is say, oh, it just means respect God. To do so, and this is what leads this, this wonderful theologian from Gordon Conwell, I think he's still there, he's 81 now, I think. Douglas Stewart says this, attempts on the part of some in modern times to define fearing the Lord as merely respecting him distort the biblical evidence. And so what is the fear of the Lord? I'll put a very simple definition. It's not perfect on the wall here. The fear of the Lord is a sudden or cultivated awareness that we are not at the center of, the existence, of existence as a direct result of encountering the presence, I'll, I'll explain all this, encountering the presence or coming to know God as holy and sovereign through revelation. So put very simply, it means this. Fear is what you experience when you as a sinner meet the holy God. That's what fear of God is. And this wonderful description up here, it can be sudden. You see it in Scripture. Sometimes you come face to face with this God and you fall on your face and you are aware immediately that you have reason to fear Him. Because the fear itself is funny because it's kind of a compound as well. Because when you have the fear of God, what that comes from is when you combine a sinner with a holy God. When those two things combine, you have fear. Because you as a sinner realize you deserve everything that the Bible says you deserve. And that if it doesn't cause fear, you haven't met the holy God or you haven't realized you're a sinner. And so, the fear of the Lord is simply foundational. What it does is it makes you stand in awe of God. It does cause respect, but not merely respect, not just the respect you have for a well-placed piece of, or a played piece of music, but it also creates in you a fear of disobeying that God because you know he deserves better. And there is a fear. I've said it before. I know a man who, who has told me more than once that he would like to cheat on his wife, that personally... He's a Christian, and he would love to cheat on his wife. He's desperate to, but the only reason he does it is because he's terrified of God. And I tell him, then stay terrified. If that's all you can cling to, stay cling to it. It demands, when you have the fear of God, it means you tread carefully on your relationship with him, that you don't just do as you please and think, oh, he'll be fine. I don't need to honor him with this or that. You tread carefully. It keeps you alert, the fear of God. It keeps you humble. And all of this is vitally important because even when you look at Scripture, the mightiest creatures we know, and I say creatures meaning things made by God, are angels. 
And angels in the presence of God, says Isaiah, have to cover themselves in his presence. They can't even look at him. So we can't so we don't want to over we don't make it seem like you have to be terrified of God in the sense of quaking with fear. But there is a very real fact that you must fear God. And if you don't, again, you haven't met him. Michael Horton, another theologian, says, God is not our buddy, an indulgent grandfather, a life coach, or a golf partner. He is the sovereign creator of heaven and earth, demanding an account from each of us for our sins, first of all against him, but also against our neighbors and the rest of creation that he has made. And here's what's interesting. And yet the fear of God is called, throughout Scripture, the, is wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. Now, what, is, what do they mean? What does that mean? Well, let's look at one more quote. Kevin DeYoung, another theologian and pastor. Why is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? Because the end of folly is the love of the praise of men. Or to say the same thing in a different way, there is no sin so prevalent, so insidious, and so deep as the sin of fearing people more than we fear God. Now, when we speak about fearing people, we don't mean quaking in fear. Very few of us walk around in the supermarket like terrified, right? We don't do that. But the fear that we're speaking of here is this obsessive coveting of other people's good opinion. And it's everywhere, and every single one of you is guilty of it. Even if I don't know you, I know you're guilty of it, because we all are. Because, look, I'll use some examples for some scripture, then I'll get practical. We see this fear that starts immediately in the garden. As soon as Adam and Eve fall, they cover themselves with, fig, with leaves. Why? One, they don't want to be in God's presence. But remember, they're not in God's presence at first. They cover themselves from one another. Because they, now they realize they don't want you to see them. They don't want to be seen. They're afraid of what you'll think if you saw the real them. This is why you hide from your spouse, why you hide from your pastor, why you hide even from yourself with lies. I was, we were talking, Sarah and I, this week. It's possible that there's, there's any number of things. I'll use an example, but pick a number. It's possible that you could be a really successful person, really wealthy, have everything going for yourself, and yet feel so guilty that you have much that other people don't have, that what you then do is, although you have a billion dollars, you scour Facebook Marketplace trying to find deals. And the reason some people do that is because there's this un they don't even necessarily know it, but there's a guilt, I feel bad, that I have much and they have little. And so I'm going to try to cover that by getting these cheap things. And we do this all the time. Not only in Genesis, think about in the book of Numbers. They won't take the promised land because there's giants there. What are they doing? I'm more afraid of that person than I am of God's promise. I don't trust God's promise. I don't fear him enough to believe he'll say the truth. I'm more afraid of that, of these people, so I won't go. When Peter is encountered by a slave girl or a servant girl, and she says, aren't you the one who is with Jesus? What does he do? He crumbles. Why? Because he's more afraid of the condemnation of this little girl and what may come of it than of obeying God. Because in that moment, he's more afraid of people than he is of God. And we do it, my goodness, all of us. Another, uh, think of another example. Um, you fear so much of not having the goodwill of other people that when you, you sometimes lie, who doesn't tell a white lie? Who hasn't said more and embellished something on their resume? Who hasn't done these things or even gossiped because they're so afraid? They're so afraid of losing reputation in your eyes that they'd sooner lie and disobey a holy God. Holy God. And so we do it every, well, all the time. Look at King Saul. 
I have to say King Saul because we're talking about Saul as well. But King Saul has this, this classic example where he's about to go to battle and he's supposed to wait until the prophet Samuel shows up to offer a sacrifice before the battle starts. But because Samuel's getting a little late and the time's ticking, Saul decides, I better just do it. So he keep, offers a sacrifice. And when Samuel comes eventually and confronts him, what does, Samuel, what does Saul say? I've sinned, for I've transgressed against the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. And so, you always obey the voice of your master. When you know better and you follow something else, when you, when you know that you shouldn't be looking at pornography if you're a guy, well, anybody, but men generally, and you still do it, you know what you're doing, you're obeying your master. And for that moment, you have feared something other than God. And it happens all the time when you feel compelled to be generous, but then you say, I wanted to be generous, but now i got bills. I understand that. We get it. But what, what, what are you fearing? Their poverty? Are you more afraid of being not having enough than you are of trusting that God will tell the truth when he says he'll care for you? And we're, it's such a fine line, but we do it all the time. So, here's the great irony. Christianity demands that you trade fear for fear. That you trade your fear for man for a fear for God. And so when we look at this passage again, you'll see Paul, or Saul, right away starts preaching. He, he starts preaching right away knowing that to do so, because there's a gag order, which he himself has imposed on the Christians, then he could go to prison and be executed for preaching. But he fears, listen, he fears more the command of God saying, you're to preach. He would rather do that and obey that than obey this gag order that says, I could die. See, which one is more real to him in that moment? God is more real. When the church accepts Paul quickly, you see what they're doing? They're, they know there's a real reason to be afraid of Paul, of Saul, and yet they accept him because they're more afraid of not accepting him as God has told them to. And so their fear of God exceeds their fear of the world. Saul then goes and takes on the Hellenists, we're told. Remember, if you go back to chapter 7, who are the Hellenists? They're the guys who killed Stephen. And now Saul, and Saul was right there with the Hellenists, okaying the murder of Stephen. And now Saul goes back and we're told he's, he's debating with them. Saul knows that these guys have very simple modus operandi. We'll debate, but if you beat us, we'll kill you. That seems to be what they've done two times. Only two times they're mentioned. But Saul says, I'm still going to engage with them because the command to preach comes with more fear and weight than the fear of prison and death to him. And then you have, contrasting with that faith, you have the Jews, the Jews in this and the leadership of the Jewish, of the temple, etc., who were told quite the opposite. They're afraid of Saul. They're afraid of what happens if this message continues to go on. So they have to put an end to it. Where is their fear? Not in God. And this is why Proverbs rightly says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Fear is a snare, because what is a snare? It's this little, uh, well, depending, but it's, it could be a rope, like a little noose on the ground, covered by leaves. It's hidden. It looks safe until you step on it, and then you find it's not. And the same way, the fear of man looks safe. It looks like the best way to get the job you want, to be secure, to have the position. As a Christian, you could say, I'm going to compromise here. Or not, I'm not going to make a big stink about this, because it'll get me a position where I could have more power to speak to more people. It looks Good. It looks wise, but it's a snare. And this is why he says it here. And the fear of God 
contributes to the peace. The reason that that little molecule of fear helps create peace is because it gives you one voice to listen to. In this world, how many voices? Even as Christians, oh my goodness, Christians, I, I say this, this is me, this is Carl speaking. There's a lot of Christian media you could be listening to out there. Be very careful what you listen to. Because everyone will tell you there's a different way to be a real Christian. If you're a real Christian, you won't tolerate, pick whatever the world is outraged by today. Which one makes you the right Christian? None of them. Scripture and Christ alone tell you. One voice comes. And so when there's a competing voices telling you this is the way you should be, don't go to this wedding, go to that wedding, do this, do that. How do you know what to do? You need peace. And the way to have peace is you know there's one voice that matters, one Lord to praise, one Lord to obey. That's all. And that's why they're at peace. They don't panic in suffering. They don't panic in illness. They don't panic when there's persecution in the church. Not Well, I'm sure they did, but many didn't. We know that because we're here as evidence of it. And why didn't they? Because they held firm to the fear of the Lord. I will fear Him before I fear whatever this world can do to me. So that's the first part of that. And the second, and this is where we'll finish, but remember, not too quickly, <laughs> is comfort. This other molecule, this other part that makes up peace. You must fear God or you have no peace. And then you must have this comfort of the Holy Spirit. Because, and why? Because God isn't, contrary to skeptics, and to some legalistic Christians, God isn't trying to make you obedient, okay, exclusively. He's not trying to make you obedient at the cost of joy and peace. He wants you to obey, but he wants you to be at joy, have joy and peace while you're obeying. He's not looking for a robot. And so we hear that they were walking not just in obedience and fear, but also in comfort from the Holy Spirit. Now, what is the comfort of the Holy Spirit? So let's walk through this as quickly but slowly as I can. First, when Jesus in John 14, 15 is talking about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit's going to come to the disciples, he says a number of things. First, he calls the Holy Spirit a comforter, if you're reading King James, or the helper, or the advocate, depending on your translation of English. But the, the Greek word is the same, of course, and it's the paraclete. Now, paraclete, overwhelmingly, when Jesus then, if you just take whatever translation you have, but then read those two chapters and Put an underline or a note beside every time Jesus describes what the Holy Spirit will do. As comforter, what are the actions? What sort of comfort does the comforter bring you? Because that will help you understand what comfort is, biblically, as opposed to the world's. And what you see is, he says something, very simple things. The comforter will be with you forever. He comes to you as a gift from God at the call of Jesus, and he will remind you of everything Jesus did, and uh, did for you, and everything he said. That's Kind of it. That's what Jesus speaks about. Now, of course, the Holy Spirit does lots of things. But the primary task of the Comforter is to constantly remind you of what Jesus did. And so it's odd, isn't it, that we think of comfort, in this world especially, as being the removal of, of, of stressful circumstances. Like when I have uh, bills to pay, but I don't have any money. Comfort, to me, is money or the bill is taken care of. If there's uh, an illness, comfort to me is healing. But that's not at all what Scripture speaks about. And if you're a health and wealth Christian, this is where you miss the mark. Scripture never speaks that way. What it does say, however, is think of the Latin word for comfort. Who knows what it means? It's a compound word. We're using compounds a lot. Two words, calm, with, forte, strength. And so comfort is never intended to be the removal of stressful situations in your life. It's meant to strengthen you. 
Comfort is meant to strengthen you in the trouble, not to remove you from it necessarily. Of course Jesus sometimes does. Of course the Spirit occasionally will pull us out of issues. But you'll notice in Scripture that rarely happens. Did you know you'll find nowhere in the New Testament where Paul ever prays for your healing? You'll only pray for him, for you hear him pray for them to have faith in suffering. But never that the suffering will go away. And yet we have all these denominations, all this theology that speaks about how we're supposed to have no suffering in life. Comfort is not the removal of circumstances, it is strength inside them. And so, the primary comfort that the Spirit gives the church and you and I comes in the form of, well, a number of things, but two, I'll summarize it in two. One is the assurance of salvation. The Spirit reminds you who you are. Ephesians 1, 13-14. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So, what does the Spirit do when you're struggling and you need comfort? What you need is not necessarily healing. What you need to do is be reminded that you are safe. That you are saved. I was so happy when I walked in today, and I should have looked at the song list, but I didn't. And I heard them singing, and it's letting the cat out of the bag. They're going to sing, It Is Well. It is well with my soul. Horatio Spadafore wrote that after his family all died in a sea. Uh, The boat went down in the Atlantic. And he writes, It is well with my soul. What you need in your suffering, the Spirit gives you. And that comfort is first and foremost, you need to be reminded that you are saved. And the second, and it's connected, is that he assures us that we are children of God. Romans 8.16 The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Which is exactly consistent with what Jesus says in John 14. When he says, I'm going, Jesus says, I'm going, but I will not leave you as orphans. I'm coming to you. What does it mean to be an orphan? It means you have no family, no place, no future. But he says, I'm not leaving you that way. I'm leaving you the Spirit, the Comforter, and he will remind you that you have a home. Because what you need when you're struggling is to know that, and this is what we see in this passage entirely, is it doesn't matter what the world is doing to you, you have a home, that you are right, that if you obey God, that you have a future, that there's a treasure that is stored up for you that cannot be touched by whatever you're going through. It doesn't matter if it's cancer that's eaten away your body, if it's poor finances that are ruining your credit and the reputation in the world. It doesn't matter if it's bad parenting. There is something for you that doesn't justify those things necessarily. But there's something for you. What you need in, in pain is to remember, I am saved. The early church could thrive in everything because it knew who to listen to, because it had fear, and it knew that it had nothing to lose. Because you knew you can't take, what is it? It's Hamlet. You cannot take from me anything I will more willingly part with. And the church knew, you can't take my life because it is safe, it hid with Christ. You can't take my dignity because I have the dignity of a son and a prince and a princess of the high king. Nothing you can do in this world can diminish my dignity or my worth, or my value. And that comfort is what the Spirit reminds you of over and over again. It's a reminder that you are saved, that you have treasure that is imperishable and untouchable by any circumstances. Stephen, I'll use this last example and then we'll close. Stephen, remember we just did Stephen in chapter 7. When Stephen is there as this this, um, servant of the church and he is being stoned because he is preaching the gospel. Listen, look at how he has peace as he dies, and fear and comfort. Peace, obviously, because he looks up. What does he see when he looks up? He sees God standing at the right hand, or Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, advocating on his behalf. 
And so he has comfort and peace because he knows that this court may condemn him, but that one has justified him. So he has peace and he has comfort, even though he's being killed. The stones don't stop like with a force field. He dies, but he has peace. And we know he has the fear of God because he's preaching the gospel that he knows will get him killed. So he knows, we know he fears God more than he fears the stones, and he has more comfort in what is promised than anything that this world can promise him. And we see this over and over and over. And so if you're a Christian, soak all of your anxieties in the gospel. Fear God more than your trials and remind yourself of the gospel over and over. Sing it in your songs. Listen to preachers who preach the gospel, not crummy ones. Listen to good music. Read good books. Be around people who remind you of that because that's what you need more and more when you're struggling. And if you're a skeptic, if you're not a Christian, listen, peace is not going to come when you get Trudeau out of office. Peace is not going to come when you get the job you want. Peace is not going to come when you have children or anything else. You, you were made, it's, it's a wonderful Augustine line, your heart is restless until it finds rest in Christ. There's nothing else. In storms, you rightly look for solid ground. The only solid ground you're going to find in the storms of life are in Christ, because he doesn't move in the storm. If you are in him, you won't either. And so, we, this, is, this passage, to me, just looks, peace and the fear of God. Let us be a church that tells people these things. Let us be a church that nourishes them as best we can and trusts these things. Let us be a church that fears God more than we fear men. Let's be a church that finds comfort in the gospel, not in our money, not even in our community alone, even though God does show his comfort in this community as well. He shows it in his word. He shows it in prayer. He shows it with your friends and neighbors who come and love you when you're struggling. God is awesome. God is good. There's no hope outside of Christ. Let's pray.